Well, I began this series a few weeks ago, a series that I'm calling The Issues of Life. I said it then, and I'll say it again. Life comes with issues, and issues come with life. I wish it were possible to just somehow skate through life and never once have to face heartache. But I know this morning I'm looking into the eyes of every single person in here and you have faced heartache at some point, some place in your life. And the truth of the matter is, if you live long enough, you'll face it again. You want to know why? I'll tell you why. Life comes with issues and issues come with life. I wish it were possible to somehow sail through life and never once face sickness, never once face disease. But every person in here has had to wrestle with sickness. Every person has dealt with some form of disease or we know someone that has on some sort of level. Do you know why? <laughs> Same reason. Life comes with issues and issues come with life. I wish it were possible for us to walk through life and never face betrayal, never face failure, but the truth of the matter is, we've all been disappointed. We've all failed. We've all had to face these kind of issues in life. But that's okay. Life is not over with. We move on with a triumphant hope in Christ. I wish it were possible to go through life and not face death. I'm not just talking about our own death, but I'm talking about the death of our loved ones, the death of family members, the death of friends. But I've got a staggering statistic for you, and that is one out of every one person's will ultimately die. You want to know why that happens? <laughs> it's the same reason. Life comes with issues, and issues come with life. So today I want to minister for a little while through a message that I'm calling, One Who Wears a Mask. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about the mask for COVID. I think we can all agree that almost everybody seems to be wearing one of those masks. But I'm talking about the mask of hypocrisy. And over the past four years, we have witnessed the hypocrisy of the media and uh, many of our elected officials as they have railed against our president. Hypocrisy so earth-moving, you can measure it on a Richter scale. Our president has had to endure heartache. He's had to endure disappointment. He's had to endure betrayal. Recently, he went through sickness. And even people on his COVID sickbed were wishing our president death. Now listen to me very carefully, because I'll bring this back in the end. Many of the American minds have been poisoned against our nation and against our president and everything that has worked to make our country great, everything that has worked to make us the greatest nation on the planet. Would you like to know why so many people hate our president? Because he is not one who wears a mask. He cares about America, I believe, and I believe he cares about the American people. And what I want you to see through today's message is this. When a believer understands his or her true identity in Christ, when they understand that our identity is hidden in Christ, then their masks can be removed. I'm not only talking about the mask of hypocrisy, but I'm talking about the mask of performance. We can take that off. Now, the word hypocrite is used 20 times in the New Testament. Jesus is the only one that used that word. John didn't use it. Matthew didn't speak it. Mark didn't say it. James didn't say it. Paul didn't say it. Jesus was the only one who used that word. Let me ask you a question. 
Who was Jesus talking to and who was Jesus talking about when he used the word hypocrite? It was Israel's leaders. It was none other than the religious Pharisees. That's the ones he would stand in front of, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and he would say, you hypocrites. The Bible definition for hypocrite is this. I want you to see this. An actor, one who wears a mask. A hypocrite is one who practices hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is defined as this. I love this. This comes from the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. And here's what it says about hypocrisy. It is defined as simulation, a feigning, in other words, a faking, if you will, a pretending, a feigning to be what one is not, or dissimulation, a concealment of one's real character or motives. More generally, hypocrisy is simulation or the assuming of a false appearance of virtue or religion, a deceitful show of a good character in morals or religion, a counterfeiting of religion. There's your definition that goes all the way back to 1828. Noah Webster said it then. He said, that's how you describe, that's how you explain hypocrisy. And it was for that reason that Jesus confronted the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were the ones who were wearing the mask. You know why? Because they desired power. They desired praise. And Jesus would have none of that. He would come along and he would speak words into their heart that would ultimately work on some of them to strip the mask right off of their face. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, we see what Jesus stood in front of them and said. He said these words. He said, you blind guides. He said, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Man, that seems like a hard word, doesn't it? I mean, I'm trying to think right now. I'm 25 years old in Christ. I don't know as though I've ever called a man a hypocrite yet. I'm not planning on it. But Jesus got in front of them and he said, you blind guy, you strain at gnats, but you swallow camels. He said, you hypocrites. And then he says, here's what you do. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. You see, they want everything looking polished on the outside. Like the mask. Let's polish the mask. Let's put a little turtle wax on the mask. But he said, you polish it. He said, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside, on the other side of that mask that you're wearing. He said, but inside. In other words, he's not talking just about the face. He's going all the way down into the heart. He said, but inside, he said, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. That's what he said. I'll bet you they would have stared a hole right through Jesus when he said those words. I'll tell you what, Anybody would have said those words to me, they'd have had my attention for sure. He said, you blind guides, you strain at gnats and swallow camels. He said, you hypocrites. And I think what was really getting him is that this is the message that you're propagating. Here I am standing in front of you with a message of God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy, salvation by grace. And he said, you know what? You just prefer to keep swallowing camels and straining. You know, you ever see anybody like that? They're just nitpicky. They'll pick at you for the littlest things. He said, inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Listen, our president has been accused of collusion. He's been accused of corruption and contamination. 
Yet his very accusers are the ones that have committed these egregious acts of betrayal. You want to know who they've betrayed? They have betrayed the American people. They have betrayed the Americans. These accusing politicians and medias too. I mean, the medias do it too. They are actually the ones who are wearing the mask. They clean the outside of the cup and their satellite dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Once again, I'm telling you, friends, no one goes through life no one courses their way through life without contending with the issues of life. You say, Pastor Mark, wait a minute. Now, why would you want to claim something like that? Well, I'm not claiming it. I'm exclaiming it. You say, what's the difference? You see, to claim means to call for. To exclaim means to call out. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in John chapter 16 and verse 33. Look at this scripture right here. He said, I have told you these things so that in me, I want you to take those two words in me. You know what in me denotes? It denotes a fixed position. We don't toggle in and out of Christ. We are fixed in Christ. It is a fixed position. He said, I have told you these things so that in me, friends, he says that you may have peace. You can't find peace any other place than Christ. He's not a source. He's the source. He is the Prince of Peace, the Bible calls him. He is the source of peace. He says, in me, you may have peace. Then he says these words, in this world, you will have trouble. That word trouble means you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have persecution. It literally means you're going to have pressures. And I think we've all walked long enough and far enough that we don't have to do this very long. And we find out very quickly that life is full of tribulation. It's full of pressures. It's full of issues of life. It's full of persecution. And Jesus himself said, I want you to know something in me. You're going to have peace. But he said in this life, in this world, he said, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have pressures. You're going to have persecution. But then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, <laughs> I love that scripture. How many of you love bread? Do you love bread? I mean, how about baked bread? I mean, fresh baked bread. There's nothing that lights up a room. There's nothing that makes a room smell better than fresh baked bread. I mean, even before it comes out of the oven, you're already thinking about that bread. Now, I want you to imagine that bread out of the oven. You let it cool for just a second, but it's still piping hot on the inside. Now, I want you to take your razor sharp bread knife and cut that crust off and set it to the side. Now, I want you to cut yourself a nice thick slice of that bread and just lay it down. Do you see the heat plumes coming up off of that bread? Can you smell it? Can you see it? Can you almost taste it, Bob? Can you see it? Can you smell it? All right, now cut yourself another slice just as thick as the other one and lay it right next to the other one. You got that picture in your mind? Now, I want you to grab yourself a bar of lava soap and I want you to take that same sharp knife and I want you to cut yourself a couple of nice thick slices of that soap and I want you to lay it on that bread and cover it up with the other one. You say, Mark, what is your point? Friends, that is what Jesus just did. He did the sandwich method. He said, in me, you're going to have peace. There's your big old hunk of bread. He said, and take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. See, we love that too. But inside of that, he said, you're not going to like this part. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have persecution. 
But friends, listen, it is never greater than Christ. In him, we have peace, no matter what's going on. Oh, it might steal it for a second, but not very long. Sandra McCollum is a friend of Valerie and mine. And Sandra told the story about how she hated shots growing up. And when she knew one was coming up, maybe three, four months in advance for school or something, she said she would start sweating. She'd start dreading it right out of the gate. I mean, nobody really likes shots, right? And then a few years ago, she had to go through some surgical procedures. And when you go through surgery, how many of you know you get stuck a few times, right? They put IVs in you. They're always drawing blood. They're always poking you with something. You can't sleep in a hospital. They're always poking you, right? And she said, I never got to the point where I really enjoyed the shots. She said, but I didn't fear them like I did at one time. And last week, Sandra had to go have a surgical procedure done. And she said they put the rubber band around her arm. And nobody likes to look at the nurse, draw the blood or put the IV in. So everybody always turns to the side and looks at something different. And typically they poke you in the crease of the elbow or sometimes right here in the wrist. But this time the lady stuck her in a different place. And when she did, she screamed and she jerked her arm away from the nurse. And the nurse got very angry about this. And uh, Sandra went to apologize, and, and this is what Sandra said to the woman. She said, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were going to stick me there. You see, oftentimes we end up in physical situations. We end up with physical issues. We end up in emotional pain, painful situations, and we say the same thing to God. I don't know how many times, I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say, God, I didn't know you were going to stick me there. The truth be told, God is not the one who is sticking us in painful situations. We either stick ourselves there or somebody else sticks us there, but God is not the one that is orchestrating and putting us into painful situations. Sometimes we just simply get deceived by the one who wears the mask. I want you to remember that truth. I want you to remember that truth in your heart on Tuesday, November 3rd, when you cast your vote. Please do not stick our nation into a painful situation and then tell God, God, I don't know why you're going to stick us in this. I'm talking about the painful situations like socialism. I'm talking about painful situations like defunding the police. I'm talking about painful situations like open borders and the catch and release of convicted felons. I'm talking about painful situations like stacking the Supreme Court. I'm talking about painful situations like continuing to kill our babies in the womb, raising your taxes, allowing our statues to be torn down and our cities burned. These are painful situations. And there are so many people that think that somehow God is the one who is sticking us in these painful situations to teach us a lesson. No, friends, we stick ourselves in these painful situations. Friends, listen. It's time for this nation to remove the mask of complacency, the church, if you will, not just the nation, but the church, and vote for righteousness, vote for the men and women that will honor God and that will honor our nation. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, I think that's true, man. Now, let me ask you a question. In this scripture that I just read, is Jesus trying to damper the good news of peace? and the overcoming the world good news by inserting a slice of trouble. I mean, I hear people saying that. Well, you got to kind of weigh the good with the bad. You got to kind of offset the good. You can't have too much good. You got to have throw some bad in there, friends. That is ludicrous. He's not trying to offset the good with the bad. Friends, you know, let me tell you something. That would be as foolish as mixing law with grace. That would be as foolish as mixing hypocrisy 
with sincerity. Jesus in that verse is merely exclaiming that it is impossible to walk through this world and somehow take the bypass around all trouble. I wish we could do that, don't you? Don't you just wish as you were driving, it said trouble straight ahead, but then there's an off-ramp and we can somehow just get off on this and just avoid all trouble in life. That is not a reality. Issues come with life. Life comes with issues. We will be sandwiched at times, but friends, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. We are to keep our eyes on the bread of life. Not necessarily what's between it, but we are to keep our eyes on the bread of life. Of life. We see this truth in John chapter 6, verses 27 through 40. It says this, do not work for food that spoils. That's food that betrays you. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Did you see those words? Isn't that beautiful? For on Christ... God has placed his seal of approval. Isn't that beautiful? Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? See, people are so under this mentality that we've got to do something in order for God to be pleased with us. Friends, we don't have to do anything. I spent most of my morning, the quiet hours of this morning, just meditating. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't running around doing things for God. I was just meditating on his goodness. And you know what? Most of that time I saw myself on his lap, just looking up at him and talking to him and listening for his voice. And it was short communication back and forth, but it was precious. And Jesus answered, here's what he said. The work of God is this. Friends, look how easy this is to believe in the one he has sent. That's the work of God. To believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give them that we may see it and believe in you? See, they're always asking for signs. He just got through telling them, he said, listen, all you got to do is believe. Now they're saying, well, now what sign are you going to give us? Just believe. Well, where's the sign? No, you don't need a sign. Just believe. Friends, I remember J. Iris. He said the same thing when they came and said, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the master anymore. And Jesus looked at him and he said, look, here's what he said. Two words. He said, just believe. And some versions say only believe. In other words, don't bring anything else in here. I know you got a bad report. I heard what they said too. I've come by to tell you, just believe. And of course, we know the story. He went to J. Iris's house and Spoke words into that little daughter, that little 12-year-old daughter of his, and she rose up off of her deathbed. Beautiful, isn't it? Just believe. Come on, man. Only believe. Friends, we're saved by believing in Christ. Believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give then that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what they've done here is they've just taken Jesus all the way back into the old covenant. They're saying, look, we're familiar with this story right here. There was a physical manifestation of your goodness. Uh, there was manna on the ground, quail that fell out of the sky, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of light that we followed. We saw the physical manifestations of your goodness. We saw you turn bitter water into sweet water. We saw you bring water from the rock. We've seen all these physical manifestations. And Jesus is saying, no, 
no, it doesn't work that way now. It's just believe in me. I want you to believe in me. Friends, when you start believing in Christ, when you start trusting in Christ, I'm telling you, you will start hearing better in Christ. You'll start hearing his voice better because you know what it does? It takes you laboring out of the way and you're not wondering about all the things you need to do for God. You just get to listen to him and simply believe. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses. Underscore those words in your heart. It is not Moses. What does Moses represent? He represents the law. And Jesus said, no, we're not going to have any part of that. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father. Daddy was the one who did this. Moses didn't do this. Daddy did this. You may have given Moses the credit, and you may be still giving him credit, but Moses didn't do it. My father did this. He said it wasn't Moses, but it was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. <laughs> Sir, they said, always give us this bread. I think that's pretty smart. They're probably still looking for a physical loaf of bread or something. But they're saying, sir, always give us this bread. And friends, when Jesus gives you the bread of life, believe me, you're always going to be receiving the bread of life. Always give us this bread. Now watch what Jesus says. Then Jesus declared, I love these words, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Friends, I know we got a lot of fancy breads out there, seven grain, 10 grain, nine grain, five grain, whatever it may be, but none of them will compare to Christ. He's the bread of life. Jesus himself said this. He said, I am the bread of life. And then he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I have told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. If that's not a new covenant scripture, I don't know what it is. He said, all the ones daddy gives me, he said, I will never drive them away. I'll never let go of their hands. That's a new covenant scripture right there. That is a finished work scripture right there. So Jesus continues, he says this. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then he says, and this is the will of him who sent me. Look at what he says, that I shall lose none. New covenant, man. Jesus said that I lose none. He didn't say that I lose one. He said that I would lose none. He said that I would lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Friends, we no longer need to hide behind a mask. Jesus is our bread of life. We are not actors that are auditioning for a role in an upcoming play. We are hidden in a fixed position in Christ. We have a responsibility to bake bread 
and serve it to those that are hungry. How does that bread come forth? I'm not talking in the natural loaf any more than Jesus was. I'm talking about spiritual bread. I'm talking about the words of life. I'm talking about Jesus's finished work. That's bread. And when you deposit that kind of bread into a man, it goes into his ear gates, but it drops down into his soul. It drops down into his spirit, man. And it does something to them. It leaves them in a sense where they're no longer hungry. They're no longer thirsty anymore. People are walking away from churches today because they're constantly hungry. They're constantly thirsty. They're not getting this bread of life. They're not seeing this finished work and they're getting disappointed. Because of the persecutions and the pressures that we face on a daily basis, we often forget who we are in Christ. And I think that's one of the enemy's greatest ploys. That's one of his greatest tactics. If he can bring enough persecution, if he can bring enough hardship, if you will, if he can bring enough disappointment into our lives, that somehow it becomes contagious. And then we start living with a different mindset. We forget the fact that Jesus said, in me, you have peace. We forget the fact that Jesus said, take courage. We forget the fact that Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And we draw our attention to the bar of lava soap. And that's about it. And friends, I'm telling you, it will wear you out. But Jesus said, in me, you have peace. You know what we forget to do sometimes? We forget to look into the mirror of righteousness. We forget to look into the mirror of wisdom. We forget to look into the mirror of sanctification and redemption. And we forget what manner of man we are. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are 18 years of age. Now, every single person in here has got to turn back the calendar, some of you more than, than others. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you are 18 years of age. And I want you to grab a mirror and I want you to take a good long look in the mirror. Can you see yourself? Good, because when you set that mirror aside, just suppose with me for a moment that you will not see yourself again until your 100th birthday. Now, we got to speed things up here because we got to get out of here in a little while. But imagine those 82 years roll by. See, 18 and 82 make 100. You have not even seen a simple reflection of yourself in 82 years. A mirror has been handed to you. And with great hesitation, great anticipation, and with great reservation, you pass the mirror in front of your face. Tears begin to flow as you look into the eyes of an absolute stranger. Time and age and memory have altered the image you once held of yourself. In fact, I don't even know if you would recognize yourself. Your childhood beauty, well, <laughs> it has fallen like the petals of two-week-old cut flowers. Friends, the beauty, the image, and the freedom of our nation hang in the balance. It can be altered, oh, not by time, but by the ones who wear the mask. You see, it wouldn't matter what your view and opinion was of you when you were 18. The person that you were looking at in the mirror would still be the most truthful reflection of you. You see, a mirror is brutally honest. It displays all of our issues of life. But here's the good news. 
our physical bodies and our emotional responses to things are not the sum total of who we are in Christ. So many people associate their behavior with their identity. Sometimes they feel like a son, like a daughter. Other times they feel like a servant. Sometimes they feel like a dog. Sometimes they feel like a worm. They feel different ways in Christ based upon what they've done or what they've looked at or what they've been associating with lately. Friends, our identity in Christ never changes. It doesn't. We are hidden in Christ. In Christ, our righteousness never fades. We look to him at age 100 as we did to him at age 18. We are hidden in the ageless beauty of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the one who will never betray us. I'm talking about the one who will never disappoint us, the one that will never defriend us, the one that will never defund us, the one that will never fail us, the one that will never leave us or forsake us, the one that will never break our hearts. That's the one I'm talking about. Friends, when the issues of life attack us, we never need to say, Jesus, I didn't know you were going to stick me there. We never need to say that. Because in Christ, our righteousness is as brilliant as it was on day one. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, we find these words. Here's what Peter wrote. He said, for all the people are like grass. You know what happens to grass? It withers. It needs to get mowed. It grows out of control. It's got weeds in it. He said, for all people are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. It says the grass withers and the flowers fall. But look what it says. Here you go again, man. Let's get the bad news out of the way. Your body's going to wither. Your body eventually is going to fall. It's going to fail. It's going to fall. Let's get that news out of the way. Right out of the gate, he said, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Where does the word of the Lord live? It lives on the inside of us. It lives in our hearts, lives in our spirit, lives in our soul, lives in our emotion, lives in our minds lives in our body. He says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And exactly, let me ask you a question. What was the word that was preached to us? I'll tell you what the word was that was preached to us. Our identity is in Christ. In Christ, we overcome the need to hide behind the actor's mask. We can take our masks off, friends. We don't need to hide anymore. I'm not a sinner on Monday and a saint on Tuesday. I'm not the unrighteousness of God on Wednesday and righteousness of God on Thursday. I'm not the unholiness of God on Friday and the holiness of God on Saturday. No, friend, in Christ we endure forever because the word of the Lord endures forever. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, we find this amazing truth. Look at this, what it says. It says, for everyone, hey, look at that, for everyone, Born of God overcomes the world. Didn't Jesus said, I've overcome the world? Now, John takes it a step further here. As he wrote later in life, he said, look here. He said, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Do you see his motif? He reached all the way back. He reached all the way back and pulled it out of one of the other gospels and said, look here. He said, everyone born of God overcomes the world. 
This is the victory that has overcome the world. I love this. Even our faith. Even our faith, he says. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Isn't that what Jesus told him? He said, I want you to believe in the one that he has sent to you. And he said right there, he said, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, he is the one that overcomes the world. Now, the Apostle Paul would echo this truth as he would write the book of Romans. Paul would declare in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37 these words. He'd say it a little bit different. He would say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love the thought of that, that we are more than conquerors. We don't just skate by in life. We don't just scoop by in life. We don't just sail by in life. He said, we are more than conquerors. And you know what? Listen, that really needs to rise. We were listening to that song, I will rise. That message needs to rise in our hearts, that we're not just conquerors. Jesus said, we're more than conquerors. More than conquerors. I mean, that sounds bizarre. I mean, when you conquer something, you win something, right? You're victorious. How do you become more victorious? How do you become more married? <laughs> That's like telling your friend, you know, my son got more married today. More married? That wouldn't make sense to us. But Paul is saying, listen, I'm going to try to express this in a way so that you understand. This is something supernatural going on here. Anybody can go win at this or that. He said, but in Christ, you are more than just conquerors. You see, friends, it's not just about winning here. We're more than conquerors. We're distributors of bread. We're distributors of living water. We are more than conquerors in Christ. The pressure that we are facing in our country is not just somebody else's pressure. It's an American pressure, but it's deeper than that. The American dream is at risk. The safety of America and the American heritage is at stake. I don't think I'll get any argument out of this when I say our religious freedoms are under attack. And to stand by and do nothing is like the man who was given the talent by his generous and happy master, but did nothing with it. May I remind you at the end of that story that the possession that he once held in his hand was taken from him and he lived the balance of his life in outer darkness. We see this truth in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Look at what it says here. Now Jesus is telling this parable. It's one of the last parables he tells before the cross. Jesus said, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five talents. One version of the Bible says he gave five bags of gold. So you get it? Talents are just money. It's money. He said to one, he gave five bags of gold. He gave five talents. To another man, he gave two talents, two bags of gold. And to another, one bag of gold, one talent, if you will, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five talents more. So also the one who had two talents gained two more. But the man who had received one talent, the man that received one bag of gold, it says, he dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now, we would look at that and we would think, oh, I don't see a real problem with that. He's just trying to be safe, you know? 
Well, we're going to find out what the master thinks about that. It says, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said. He's excited. He's doubled the master's money. He said, master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Don't you love it when the master's happy? Like I told Valerie this morning, if mom ain't happy, nobody's happy. When the master's happy, come on, we should be happy. I'm happy that Jesus is happy with me. And Jesus is happy that I'm happy with him. You share in this happiness. Happiness shouldn't be one-sided. You share in this happiness. And that's exactly what's going on here. He said, come and share your master's happiness. Happiness will carry you a long way, friends. Joy of the Lord will carry you a long way. The Bible says it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. Happiness is just birthed out of joy. It's the outward manifestation of joy in our heart, contentment in our heart. He said, the man with two talents also came. And master, he said, you entrusted me with the two talents. See, I have gained two more. He said the same thing the first guy said. He probably looked at him and said, well, that worked for him. Now, he doubled the master's money. I'm doubling the master's money. We'll see what happens here. And Jesus said the same thing back to him. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And he said, come and share your master's happiness. So we can see right away, it's not about the amount here. Just park that on the back burner for a second. It's not about the amount. Because if that was true, then he would have been happier with the first guy than the second guy. He had a bigger return. And then he continues, he says this, then the man who had received the one talent, the man that received one bag of gold, if you will, came. And he said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I don't find that flattering at all. I <laughs> to tell somebody, man, I wouldn't say that. I don't know if I'd want to say that to my own boss. You know, look, man, I know you're just a hard man. You know, you, you know we do all the harvesting for you. We do all the reaping for you, you know. No, no, but this is, his, this is what he says, okay? He said, gather where you have not scattered seed. So look at these words. I want you to really zero in on these words. He said, so I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned... I would have received it back with interest. And then he says, so take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. This is kind of a hard parable under the new covenant. Stay with me, okay? For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Friends, listen to me carefully. This parable, this story, is not about the loss of salvation. This is prior to the cross. It's not about the loss of salvation. Furthermore, salvation is a finished work. When it comes to losing our salvation, the thought of that should bother us about as much as it would bother a dog to get a bad haircut. I mean, it shouldn't even bother us. It's a finished work. Jesus is not talking about the loss of salvation here. But many people will read these scriptures and say, there you go. Jesus said, take him out, throw him out in the outer darkness. We'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is not only the place where there is darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, friends. Many people are living in that right now. They're living in darkness. They're living with weeping and gnashing of teeth. The man who was given the one talent did nothing with his talent. Why? Because he was afraid. Fear had paralyzed. Fear had silenced his actions. Jesus was essentially saying this in this parable. Don't be afraid. So what he would tell many people as he would journey. Even Jairus, fear not. He said, only believe. Those were the words he first said. Fear not, Jairus, only believe. And so... The first thing he's really trying to convey out of this parable is don't be afraid. Be willing to take some risk. Be willing to walk on water. Get out of the boat. Walk on water. Use your faith. And for Pete's sake, take your mask off. You see, that man had no problem with taking the money when his master handed it out. Why? Because he wanted to look religious. He was the one who was wearing the mask. The man who was given that one talent didn't exercise his faith. He had the attitude of, I didn't know you were going to stick me there. I don't know what to do. Friends, this is so much more than just an economical strategy that Jesus is teaching. It's a principle that holds true to this day. You cannot walk through life and bury everything in the flesh. That's what we are. We're made out of the ground. He buried his talent in the ground. You can't bury everything in the flesh. Friends, listen, on Tuesday, November 3rd, please do not try to bury your vote in the flesh. Your single ballot may make the difference of how much heartache, how much sickness, how much disappointment, how much betrayal, how much failure, and how much death we experience in the years to come. That's how important this election is. You say, Pastor Mark, God is not going to allow America to suffer because we have his favor. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Is there only one true and living God? Is there only one bread of life? Absolutely. That's Jesus and his Father and the sweet Holy Spirit. If there's only one, that would make him the one living God over the country of Haiti, yet Haiti's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. If there's only one true and living God then that makes him the God of Nicaragua, right? Yet people live in tin shacks. We've been there. We've seen poverty up close and personal, friends. We've seen poverty on a level that you wouldn't believe, friends. Is God the same God over Mozambique, Africa? Yet Mozambique is in the top 10 poorest countries in the world. Is God the God of India? Is God the God of this world? Yes. So what's my point? These countries suffer because they have corrupt governments, period. Listen, I'm not coming in here to bash governments. I'm here to draw our attentions to a reality. 
Remember the sandwich? Remember the two pieces of bread and the, and the lava soap? Remember, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But that doesn't mean we grab the dog by the ear to see what it's made out of. We have a responsibility. So let's ask the question. Let's ask that obvious question. How do we find peace in the midst of a storm? How do we find peace in the midst of chaos? How do we find peace in the midst of this darkness? How do we find peace in the midst of weeping and gnashing of teeth? I'm glad you asked. I want to draw your attention back to that same scripture. John chapter 16 and verse 33. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me. That's how you find peace. It begins with being in Christ and believing in Christ and trusting in Christ, trusting in his finished work, trusting that we are in a fixed position in Christ. That's where it begins, that we believe that we are in Christ and in Christ we have peace. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have pressure. You're going to have persecution. You're going to have tribulation, but take heart. Some versions say, but be of good courage. He said, I have overcome the world. So what was Jesus telling us in that verse? You know what he's saying? He's saying just as certain as an apple oxidizes once bitten, this world comes with trouble. This world comes with persecution. This world comes with all kinds of pressures. Friends, you cannot be in this world and completely avoid trouble any more than you can walk barefoot in a leech infested creek and not lose some blood. It's just impossible. The one thing that we can do even in the midst of all these situations of life, we can choose to have peace, even in the face of trouble, even in the face of persecution. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What do we do with the peace that Jesus gave us? How do we overcome the world? How do we penetrate? How do we permeate our world with daddy's goodness? And how do we harness and how do we dispense the heart of Christ in the midst of a world that's filled with pressure, filled with persecution, filled with trouble, filled with tribulation. I want to draw your attention to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. Look what he said. He said, if it is possible, look what he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Jesus is saying, I'm willing. Are you willing? He says, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, look what he says, man. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. You give him bread. Friends, I have watched that principle work time and time again. I don't mean just in the natural when people are hungry, but when people are acting crazy sometimes, that means they're starving for something on the inside of them. They're starving for love. They're starving for acceptance. They're starving for a touch, maybe, maybe a prayer. They're starving for something and they need something. That's why we need just to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and just believe that he has their best in mind. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Look what he says. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You like that scripture? I like that scripture. 
The Apostle Paul was basically saying what Jesus said in John chapter 16, 33. But Paul, what, you know what he did? He attached a life's application to what it means to take courage. You see, it takes courage to feed enemies. Enemies that want to kill you, but you come in with food and want to feed them. That takes courage, man. Valerie and I were sitting under a minister years ago who wanted to distribute Bibles in an eastern country. I believe it was Iraq, if I'm not mistaken. And they brought him in with machine guns and set him in a general, a high-ranking official's office. And Bibles aren't allowed there. And he said, as I sat there and I was being interrogated and the men stood there with their guns, the man said, what are you doing here? Why'd you come here? And he said, I came to bring your children's shoes. I noticed the children have no shoes. And so I have brought shoes for everybody. And he brought other things that were very needed products. And he said, and then quietness fell in my heart because he said, I knew that wasn't the whole reason I came. I came to bring them the scriptures too. And he said, it took an immense amount of courage. But he said, I also came to give them Bibles. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. God did something totally miraculous. That man should have lost his life sitting in that general's office that day. But that general agreed with him and said, you have my blessing, essentially. Not because he loved God, not because he feared God, but he loved the children. He loved the kids. And he wanted the kids to have shoes. But God was working supernaturally in that situation. This is what I'm getting at. It takes courage to feed our enemies. A lot of courage. It takes courage not to take revenge, not to do our own recourse, our own revenge, because you know what? You run the chance of looking passive. What man wants to look passive? It takes courage to be quick to listen and slow to speak or not to speak at all. And Paul reminds us in the scripture, he says, to live in peace. And he instructs us of how to overcome evil. He says, you overcome evil with good. You don't overcome evil with more evil. You overcome evil with good. In other words, we take our masks off so that we can help other people take their masks off. The masks that they hide behind because they feel dirty, because they feel ashamed, because they feel guilty, because they feel condemned, because they feel fearful. You know, one thing I've noticed since people have started wearing masks, the people that wouldn't give you good eye contact now give you better eye contact. I don't know what it is behind all this stuff. I'm not a psychology major, but I'm telling you, it's because they're hiding part, a big portion of who they are behind the mask and they have better eye contact in a sense. It takes courage, friends. Knowing who you are in Christ, knowing that your identity is hidden in Christ. You know what? The mask is removed. And when you see how much freedom there is by not wearing a mask, you're able to take loving things and put it in the heart of other people and say, you know what? In Christ, you don't have to wear that mask. That mask of shame and guilt and condemnation and fear and performance, whatever it may be, that mask of hypocrisy, you don't have to wear that. I can show you the way out of that. You just have a slice of bread and a good cold drink of living water. You'll walk right out of that stuff. Knowing that Jesus said, just believe in me. That's all you need to do. Don't fear, just believe. We take our masks off so that we can help others take their masks off. That means we are not silent. So we do not bury our righteousness in the flesh. We love, we laugh, 
and we live and we help others to find their way out of darkness, friends. Just because you and I didn't start the fire doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to put it out. Can you imagine that? Walking by a fire. Imagine in California, that fire that they've got going on had to start in a little bush somewhere, someplace, you know, a little grassy knoll. Somebody may have walked by and just said, that ain't my responsibility. It doesn't matter. Just because you didn't start the fire doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility to put it out. I didn't make you a sinner. I didn't put all that guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation on you, but I know the way out. I know the fire extinguisher of daddy's love. I know the fire extinguisher of daddy's grace. I know his mercy, what his mercy looks like. And that's what you need right now, friends. You see, friends, you and I may not have started the fight that we're seeing unfold. We may not have picked the fight that we're seeing unfold in our nation today, but we will be picking our next officials. And in 23 days from today, that will take place. In this series, I have bugled the 24 solemn notes of taps as I have stood in the shadows of the surgical rooms and protested the killing of innocent babies. You say, how can we prevent the killing of these babies? Friends, it begins by our prayerful vote. May I remind you that it is the President of the United States that nominates the Supreme Court justices who presided over the Roe versus Wade in 1973 and on a 7-2 to vote decided that a woman should have that right to take the life of an unborn child. I have bugled the 24 solemn notes of taps as I have stood over the graves of our fallen soldiers, our heroes, people that have laid their lives down for this country. I have bugled the 24 solemn notes of taps as I have saluted our flag and sang our national anthem. I have stood for our national anthem. I have bugled the 24 solemn notes of taps as I have honored the men and women that wear blue. I have bugled the 24 solemn notes of taps as I have sat as a watchman on our southern border and I said no. No illegal drugs into this country. No way. I've watched the destruction of those drugs. These solemn notes come in the form of messages, messages that were created to awaken, I believe, the heart of the church so that she might see her responsibility to vote in the upcoming election. Friends, America was founded as a Christian nation, and to threaten this foundation should alarm us. It really should. In Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, my closing scriptures. This is the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. What a missionary journey they were on here. And it says this, it says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. What they do? They believe. They put their faith in Christ. They spoke so effectively, yet they were dealing with chaos on every corner. But it didn't stop them. They spoke effectively. In other words, they spoke what those people needed at that moment. I don't believe they had a canned sermon that they went from town to town and just read off some sort of script and said, duh, 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 this is what the Lord said, blah, 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 blah. No, no. They spoke effectively. 
It impacted the hearts of the people that were listening. It was effective. It says that a great number of the Jews and the Greeks believed. But it says, but the Jews who refused to believe, in other words, there were some that refused to believe, stirred up the other Gentiles, look at these words, and poisoned their minds. I told you we'd come back to that. They poisoned their minds against the brothers. In other words, they had a message that was contrary to Paul's. And that message was simply about the law. It was about the Mosaic law. These were Judaizers even, some of the Jews. They had a message that was so radically old covenant, so different. And you know what it says? It says they poisoned their minds. That's an interesting statement. I find that amazing. What else would they have been telling them? They were giving them a message that was bread with no nutrition. And they were eating it going, hey, this has got taste. This tastes good. But it has no nutritional value to it. It has no life in it. It's not the bread of life you're giving them. And it poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. Why? Because they're undoing a whole lot of stuff. They're speaking effectively. Spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. Look what it says. Who confirmed the message of his grace. He confirmed the message of his grace because that was the message they came in with. But these people are still searching for an outward sign. In other words, they want to follow somebody, but they're looking for an outward sign. So they're hearing Paul with this message of grace. They're hearing other people with a message of law. Okay, they both sound believable, but only the one was accompanied by signs and wonders. It says right there, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders the people of the city were divided. Friends, does this sound familiar? I mean, we could take it on a much larger scale. We can say the people of this nation are divided. He said the people of the city were divided. Why? Because they're hearing two radically different messages. And when you hear radically different messages, it will divide you. You don't know who to believe. They both sound right. Even the Bible says that every man soundeth right until another man cometh to speak. In other words, if you only hear one side of the story, but they're hearing both sides of the story, but you have passionate people on both sides with messages that are radically different from each other. Listen, that's what's going on in our government today. You have passionate people on both sides, but the messages are radically different. That's why you have to look beyond the message. You have to look beyond the word and you have to look at the record. You have to look at what has happened. And it says they were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. You know what you can break that down to and say? Two parties. Two parties. You've got two parties that are fighting against each other. And some side with one, some side with the other. It says finally, there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Who are they going to stone? Paul. And friends, as you keep reading in those chapters, you'll find that Paul was stoned to death and they dragged him outside of the city and the people came out, laid hands on him, prayed for him and he got up and he walked back into the city and spent the night and left the next day on a missionary journey. This is the apostle Paul. It says, so they're plotting to literally kill him. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Friends, we're not talking about gravel here. 
We're talking about rocks that give you contusions and broken bones and take your life. Big rocks. Mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe. Now, this always amazes me. And we see this threaded throughout the Bible. We see a situation that happens and we think that God should just come down automatically and intervene. Joseph had a dream. He had an angel speak to him in the middle of the night and say, look, get up. They're trying to kill the son. They're trying to kill your son. You know, go to Egypt. I mean, we just have to keep listening for the Holy Spirit. He knows what's best in that situation. Oh, he would come. They would come back to this city. Believe me, they would. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country where they continued Look at that, to preach the gospel. The gospel is the good news. That's what they continued to preach. They preached the gospel. They preached the good news. What is our response to those who mistreat us? What is our response to those that stone us? What is our response to those that even divide our country and attempt to poison our minds? I'll tell you what it is. It's the same response that Paul had and Barnabas. We are to confirm the message of his grace and we are to continue to preach the gospel. The gospel of grace is the only hope there is for the one who wears the mask. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from this message today are these. Every single one of us is going to experience heartache. We're going to experience sickness. We're going to experience betrayal, failure, turmoil, disappointment. We're going to experience pressure, tribulation. We're going to experience persecution. And ultimately, we are going to experience death. Life comes with issues, like I said, and issues come with life. Every single one of us was issued a mask very early in life. And you know what we've done? We have perfected the art of hiding behind it as we play the role of an actor performing for approval and performing to please God, performing for his applause. The mask is removed only when a believer comes to the revelation that his, that her identity is hidden in Christ. In Christ, there is no disappointment. In Christ, there is no, I didn't know that you were going to stick me there. In Christ, there is no collusion. In Christ, there is no corruption. In Christ, there is no contamination. In Christ, there is no hypocrisy. In Christ, there is only peace. In Christ, there is always fresh bread. In Christ, we meet the generous and happy master. In Christ, we learn how to overcome evil with good. In Christ, we find the courage to feed our enemies. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of pressure, we discover that we are more than conquerors. In Christ, we have been given eternal life, and only in Christ do we discover his seal of approval. I want you to remember all of these truths on Tuesday, November 3rd, when you cast your votes. Let me ask you a question in closing. Will you cast your vote? to protect our precious liberties. Friends, please do not bury your talent in the flesh. Do not be afraid because in Christ we are hidden and in Christ we are no longer the one who wears the mask. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, Daddy, I just praise you and I thank you. I thank you that in Christ we are hidden and in Christ, Daddy, our masks are taken away. When we just put our trust in Christ, you said, Father, that in me you have peace. So often we go looking for peace other ways and then we end up with this crazy response of, I didn't know that you were going to stick me there. We blame it on you somehow, Daddy. Father, I thank you that we can take courage. We can take heart. Even now, because you've overcome the world, we're more than overcomers as well because we were crucified with Christ. Daddy, this is a very important election that is coming up. Help people to see that they have a responsibility. We can't just keep walking around the fires. We can't just keep walking around our burning cities. We cannot just keep walking around business as usual. So we thank you, Father, that you've got a plan. And as we spend time with you, and we just soak in your presence, Daddy, as we just put our arms around you and, and feel your embrace, your gentle whisper comes through so clearly, Daddy. It echoes in the chambers of our heart. Father, I thank you that this nation was founded upon Christian values and Christian principles. And Father, that you speak to us, you whisper in our hearts your deepest desires. And Father, those things are communicated as we minister the word to people, a word that brings the gospel of peace, a word that brings the gospel of grace and just deposits it in all the hearts of the people, Father. We thank you, Father, for this word in Jesus' name. Amen.